You know, these last few weeks I've been sort of telling on myself, I guess, a bit, because there, there's uh, big transitions going on in, in so many people's lives, not just mine and Marion's, of course, but uh, lots of transitions, lots of things going on. So I've been kind of processing out loud on Sundays, you know, what I'm going through and, and how I'm, I'm trying to understand, you know, the, uh, the realities of life and, and marketing and, you know, just business and cash flow and all those things and hanging on to everything that gives us a reason for existence here at The Effect, which is this contemplative way, this inward way. And so trying to negotiate, trying to thread that needle has been something that's, that's been an interesting exercise for me. You know, sometimes when you think you've really put a stake in the heart through something and then it just pops right back up again like one of those whack-a-mole things, that's how I'm feeling at, at this point in life. And so dealing with those things, trying to work through them has been um, a, uh, just a period of reevaluation a period of reworking through things and so on and so forth. And as I've been talking to people and I've been sharing this, it's been great because people have you know, lent support and advice and it's been great. You know, kind of a reminder to open up and be vulnerable at times. Let people see what's going on because how in the world are we connected if we don't do that? And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, as a teaching pastor here, I'm supposed to be the, the confident captain and all of that, but... The, the truth of the matter is, we're all in the boat together. We're all working this stuff out. You know, we're playing different roles, but the experience, the human experience, is the same for all of us. So don't think, you know, that Frank is perfect. Just don't think that Frank is perfect. <laughs> but a lot of people have also been sharing to me, you know, how they're feeling lost, how they're feeling disconnected, how they're feeling that even unworthy of being able to, to do certain things that they're supposed to do, not feeling that they're, that they're up to the challenge. And all of these human emotions that are so prevalent among all of us, but I've been, I've been hearing them now. And as they're talking to me, they're talking about there's this missing piece, there's something I need to find, you know, and maybe I need to, I need to pray harder, I need to double down, and maybe there's fasting involved. They're, they're looking for the big answer, the big reveal. They're looking for something to really come down. And since I suppose the pain is so great, the thought is that the solution has to be great too. The solution has to be as big and significant as the difficulty that the person is going through. And if you think about that, sometimes that's sort of a sneaky way of feeding the ego as well, isn't it? You know, that we think that there has to be something large, something huge, something significant in order for us to start feeling whole again. So what is the way through? How do we deal with this? You know, at this point in a conversation with somebody, I'll probably turn and say, do you want to know what the way through is? Do you want to know how you can go about this? And they say, well, sure. And I say, well, then what it really comes down to is about fixing broken windows. And I get about the same look from them that I'm getting from you right now, see? Broken windows, what are you talking about? There is a theory of, actually it's a a theory in criminology that uh, was put forth in the 60s originally and then again in the 80s and then it was employed in the 90s in New York um, to try to reduce crime. And I wanted to read you a little bit about it because I think there's something here that we can use. There's an analogy here. Whatever you're going through, however we're, we're processing whatever your level of pain or angst or whatever, 
the broken windows idea can get us back down to ground level, can get us back down to a place where we can actually start to work. Consider a building with a few broken windows. If the windows are not repaired, the tendency is for vandals to break a few more windows, and eventually they may even break into the building, and if it's unoccupied, perhaps become squatters or light fires inside. It's not so much the actual broken window that is important, but the message the broken window sends. It symbolizes the community's defenselessness and vulnerability and represents the lack of cohesiveness of the people within. Neighborhoods with a strong sense of cohesion fix broken windows and assert social responsibility on themselves, effectively giving themselves control over their space. A Stanford psychologist arranged an experiment testing the broken window theory in 1969. He took a car with no license plates, put the hood up, and parked it in a Bronx neighborhood. And then a second car in the same condition was parked in Palo Alto. Now, if you know anything about the Bronx in the 60s, you know, that was your picture of the ghetto. And if you know Palo Alto in Northern California, that's where Steve Jobs lived. All right, So you kind of get the picture between the two neighborhoods. The car in the Bronx was attacked within minutes of its abandonment. The first vandals to arrive were a family, a father, mother, and a young son, who removed the radiator and the battery. Within 24 hours, everything of value had been stripped, and after that, the car's windows were smashed, parts torn, upholstery had been ripped, and children were using the car as a playground. At the same time, the vehicle sitting idle in Palo Alto sat in touch for more than a week until the psychologist himself went up to the vehicle and deliberately smashed one of its windows with a sledgehammer. Within hours, people joined in the destruction. The conclusion was that in a neighborhood such as the Bronx, where the history of abandoned property and theft are more prevalent, vandalism occurs much more quickly as a community generally seems apathetic. Now, after being elected mayor of New York City in 1993, Rudy Giuliani hired William Bratton as police commissioner to implement broken windows policies throughout the city. Crime rate was really crazy in New York at that time. According to a 2001 study, rates of both petty and serious crime fell significantly after the policies were implemented, and crime continued to decline for the following 10 years. All right, now, this theory is not without controversy. It's hotly contested and hotly debated. But the studies seem to bear out that there's this correlation between taking care of the small problems, between police actually prosecuting petty crime, you know, like like public drunkenness and vandalism and graffiti, tagging, and even fare evasion on the subway, taking care of those small problems and taking care of the, the environment, picking up the trash, fixing the broken windows, painting over the graffiti. Because once that's done, the neighborhood moves kind of in sync with that. They take their own pride of ownership. They start doing their part as well. So this thing seems to work, even though it has its detractors, seems to work on the macro level and in terms of criminology. All right. But just because it works there, will it work at the micro level? at the personal level. I found another article. I want to read you a little bit of that because this has to do with time management and personal effectiveness and productivity, but it's using the same analogy, the same model of broken windows. And he asks, do you have broken windows in your life? 
You know, those unfinished must-dos that never slide into done. When you have something unfinished in your life, it excuses more of the same happening. It could be a repair needed around the house, clutter in your garage, or a conversation that never happened. Every time you try to ignore that missing baseboard, broken lawnmower, or person you're angry with, you weaken your resolve. Just like litter in the park that attracts more litter, unresolved broken windows attract more of the same. Do you have some broken windows like conversations that should have happened but didn't, a cluttered desk or computer desktop, cables, sticky notes, business cards, file folders, half-finished goals that have been ignored for months, unread books by your bedside, an email box that hasn't been cleaned since the Victorian era. I find that a little weird because in the Victorian area, I don't know how much an email box would have to be cleaned, but broken furniture, broken car, computer, phone, lists you've made but don't follow. Now, typical advice for fixing things in our life might start with making a list, right? How often do we do that? But instead of making a list, develop a new habit. Don't think about fixing your broken windows. Simply fix them. Two nights ago, I was barbecuing in our backyard. As I left the kitchen to go outside, I could feel the kitchen door handle was loose. Normally, I would make a mental note to fix the door and then forget about it. Instead, I walked to my tool room, grabbed a screwdriver, and tightened the handle. Done. After moving into a new office, boxes of books, unwanted bookshelves, renovation materials still needed to be dealt with. I came in one weekend with my daughters, turned on the tunes, and we had a great couple of hours doing a final cleanup. Done. Every day I waste time looking for files on my computer. It's frustrating. Last week I took 20 minutes, and using the new file tagging tool on the computer, I attached a digital colored dot to all the slideshows, sample contracts, and files I frequently need to find. Done. It saved a huge amount of time. Look around your workspace, your living room, or wherever you're reading this. Notice one thing that you consider unfinished. That's your broken window. Set a timer for five minutes and go to work to repair, remove, or reduce that distraction. That's your new habit. Okay, so maybe this could work if we actually implemented it, you know? in terms of our own personal productivity, in terms of our efficiency, maybe even in terms of stress release. I mean, I know, Marion knows, you know, I can let something go for quite a while. She bought a couple of chairs for the backyard. They're still in boxes by the back slider, you know. I suppose today I'm going to need to put those together, right, hon? I'm telling on myself again. But we all know we do this. Those are the things that are still broken in our lives. And they can be as mundane as as clutter on your desk, but they can also be as important as a relationship that is hanging in tatters. And you know that you need to call that person. You know that you need to do something. Maybe you know that you need to make amends. But you keep putting it off. You keep laying it down. You keep distracting yourself with something else. And all of that stuff builds up. And it seems to attract more chaos more disorder, more unfinished business, more broken relationships. It makes a kind of common sense if you think about it. All right. So it seems like it works for the macro, for criminal activity. It seems like it could work in the micro with personal effectiveness and personal productivity. But how about the spiritual? And that's what we're here to talk about. Is it possible that this could actually work in the spiritual realm. Because think about it. After all, Jesus was pretty spectacular, wasn't he? Yeah? 
He was healing. He was exercising demons. He was raising people from the dead. He was a, an amazing public speaker. He led and spoke to large groups of people. In his area, in his place, he was pretty spectacular. So how does this work if we're going to try to apply broken windows to spirituality? One thing I want you to try to, to consider this morning is before all of that spectacular activity of Jesus in his public ministry, what was he doing? You know, there's a pattern in ancient writing, and we do it too, that if something was generally known by the people, it didn't have to be stated. Especially in an era where writing materials were so expensive, they were animal skins, they were woven out of of reeds and plants, and inks were made out of animal secretions and so on. I mean, it was expensive to get writing materials. So you didn't waste a lot of ink and a lot of paper, not really paper, writing materials saying something that everybody already knew. You just left it unsaid. It was understood. And we do the same thing. If I tell you, if I ask you, is it legal to drink if you're under the age of 21 in California? The question is, drink what? Water? See, we already know that a question like that contains alcoholic beverages. It's already known. We don't have to state it. The question itself contains the information that's missing that we need. The scriptures are the same way. They don't state the things that everybody understood. Now, it's difficult for us, 2,000 years later, half a world away, and in a culture that is so alien to the ancient culture that produced our scriptures as to be from another world. So it's more difficult for us. We need to try to reconstruct what's going on. But take a look. The Gospels don't even bother to tell us anything about what Jesus was doing for at least 18 years. From the age of 12 to around the age of 30, the Gospels are completely silent. It just does a quick cut from 12 to 30. Now, it's not that what he was doing during those nearly 20 years was unimportant, but what it was was expected. It was understood by the people. Jesus was doing what everybody else did. It didn't need to be stated. At least, this is my interpretation. You can take what you need and leave the rest here. But think about it. The last time that we see Jesus before he is getting baptized by his cousin John is at Luke 2. And in Luke 2, his family has gone, as was the custom, on a pilgrimage festival to Jerusalem from Nazareth, about 80 miles, for the Passover festival. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's a day's journey by caravan for them to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So they make the journey. They are there for seven days because the Passover was a seven-day festival. And then they start back again, and they are a day out when they suddenly realize that Jesus is not with the caravan. They don't know where he is. You know, there's, It's all the family, the clan, moving together. So Mary and Joseph thought he was with one of the relatives, and suddenly they realize he's nowhere to be found. They have to take a day's journey back, a day out, a day back, and then a day looking for him. It's three days before they find him in the temple, discussing and wowing the elders there with his insight and with his wisdom that he already had at age 12. Well, you can imagine the panic of a mother. Imagine the panic of a father lost your child in the big city like that. But what does Jesus do? He mouths off a little bit to them. 
And then he backs down. And right at the end of Luke 2, it says that he moved in submission to them, in subjectivity to them, and he grew in wisdom and stature. So if we take that and extrapolate it into those 18 years, we realize Jesus was living as he would, as any young man would live in that culture. He worked in the family business, which was either carpentry or masonry or some kind of of construction business. He took care of his siblings as the eldest. He, he was steadfast in his religious practice. He studied, he learned, because we knew, know that he could read uh, by the time of his ministry. He was doing all the things that boys were supposed to be doing. And then eventually, we assume that his father died, Joseph died, so he would take over the mantle of heading up the family, of heading up the business, of doing everything that he was supposed to do. Until that desire, until that pull, that call for something deeper drove him to the River Jordan, to his cousin, to the baptism, and then on into the wilderness. But for that silent time, Jesus was tending to the broken windows. He was doing the little things. He was just taking care of day-to-day business and learning, getting that sense of community and structure deeply tamped down into his spirit. And when he does leave the house, and we can assume he did it responsibly, he goes into the wilderness and there establishes a different kind of structure, a different kind of community. And even though the the Gospels tell us 40 days, we know that that's a symbolic number. It could have been a longer time than that. It could have been years that he was off in that place All we hear about is the results of that time that he spent alone or in a community that was apart from his family. The three temptations that he overcomes, being able to deal with the ego's need, the human being's need for power and relevance and and spectacular attention. Again, tending to the internal broken windows, whereas for the previous time he was attending to the external broken windows. But the way I look at Jesus and look at the way that he lived his life, he was dealing with everyday details exactly as we do, being absolutely faithful to them, being committed to them, living in accountability to his family and his community, and living in discipline to the structure that that family imposed on him. And of course, giving back the entire time to his family, and to others along the way. When Jesus comes back from that sojourn in the wilderness and begins his ministry, his public ministry, how does he teach? How does he try to convey this relationship, this oneness with Father that he has realized in himself? Let's take a look. At Matthew 13, it'll probably be up on the screens and it's in your... Handouts, starting at verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Next verse, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, I don't know how much you've studied these particular little 
parables of Jesus. But I've seen commentaries and interpretations where it really gets into the weeds, and they're interpreting every little thing. You know, you know what, what does a seed mean? And, and a mustard seed really isn't smaller than all the other seeds, and it really doesn't grow into a tree. And so they're trying to find relevance in all these bits and pieces. And, you know, birds are sometimes evil and negative in previous parts of Scripture. Are the birds evil? Is there something to do with that? And all these ideas. And then you look at the leaven. The leaven is sometimes understood as evil, that leavens the whole group and so on. So they're going into all this detail and trying to figure this out. You know, I think there might be possibly some applications there that are useful, but I also think it could be a lot of overthinking going on here. Because if you just pull out and you just look at these, and remember, these are taken from images of everyday life that the people would have understood. They knew about mustard seeds. They knew about planting. They knew about baking. They understood how this all works. But the point that Jesus is making is the kingdom is this tiny little thing, a little, almost invisible thing. It's invisible when it's underground, but it has this huge effect, something tiny that has a huge effect. It's kind of like uh, chaos theory. You know about chaos theory? Heard of the butterfly effect? They say the butterfly flaps its wings in Beijing and you get rain in New York City. The idea with chaos theory is very small changes in the input yield huge changes in output. You kind of know if you're like one degree off, if you start a journey and you keep going with that little error, by the time you get to as far as you're supposed to go, you're way off course because that little change in input creates a huge change in output. Jesus is saying the kingdom is like this. It's something tiny, but it has this huge effect. And what he's telling us to do is pay attention. Pay attention to the little things, the small things, and kingdom growth is going to follow that. That's where we start. Take a look at a few verses further at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hit again. Kind of strange. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. <laughs> and then at verse 45, next verse, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. What's Jesus telling us here? The kingdom of heaven is hidden. The kingdom of heaven is in a place where most people are going to miss it. They're just going to motor on by. But if you're tending to the daily details of your life, think about the farmer in the field. He doesn't say it's a farmer in the field, but why would the guy be in a field? He's in the field. He's doing what he does every day of his life as a farmer, and he finds this treasure. The merchant is doing what he does every day of his life in the marketplace, and he finds this treasure. It's by attending to the daily details of our lives, the broken windows, that something is discovered that is huge and worth letting go of everything that you think you have in favor of this huge truth that Jesus says will make us free. We need to really understand where Jesus is coming from. And you marry that with the shape of his life and you start to understand how he moved. We like to talk about, I like to talk about, maybe you don't, about Moses and the 40 years that he spent as a shepherd in the backwater of the Midian, developing what I like to call the shepherd consciousness. He noticed the burning bush. 
That was not necessarily a miraculous occurrence in the desert. But what he noticed is that it was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. That took detail. That took a building up of awareness over years, 40 years, where he was able to see something, notice it, turn aside, and realize he's standing on holy ground. This shape, this motif, keeps occurring in Scripture, but it's so present here in Jesus' life. Take a look at Mark 4. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. You know, we like to imagine that we've got to solve the mystery. You know, we've got to find the secret. How many ads do you see? You know, here's the secret of this. You know, here's the secret of that. You know, because that is something that really intrigues us. We're going to find the secret. We've got to uncover the mystery. This is something that, again, feeds the ego. We, figure, we think that we have got to figure it all out before we can set out. And if we have that mindset, when are we ever going to set out? When do we ever have it all figured out? How is that possibly going to work? Because the truth of the matter is the secret is hiding in plain sight. It's right in front of us. And we all really, ready know what we have to do. We already know that. But we turn it into this murder mystery that we've got to solve somehow. When Jesus is saying, you just set out in order to find out. You just set out into the field if that's where you work. You set out to the marketplace if that's where you go every day to do your business You continue to live your life, but you live it with attention to detail. You live it with this desire to fix the broken windows, to move things from disorder to order in your life. And things are going to happen. The farmer plants the seed, waters it, and goes and takes a nap. And stuff is happening that he knows nothing about. He's sleeping through it, doesn't understand how it works. The beauty of it is we don't have to understand how it works because if we did, we'd be lost. All we have to do is show up to the daily details and things are going to happen because spiritual growth doesn't come from the top down. It always comes from the bottom up. And the irony is that spiritual work sometimes doesn't even feel feel spiritual because we've equated spirituality with religion. And so we think when we're doing the things that have the religious trappings, we're doing something spiritual. But if we're just showing up to work, if we're just working in the backyard, if we're fixing things that are broken in the house so that our household can run more smoothly, that doesn't feel spiritual to us. But I think what Jesus is saying, yes, it is. As long as we're breathing here, we can't separate our spirituality from our physicality. The two have to be expressed together because we're living, breathing beings here. And we can learn these deep spiritual truths by just showing up and taking care of the broken windows. And I'm realizing in my transition, I've really got to get back to basics. I spent a lot of time 
learning things about the contemplative life. And then things start to get on a roll, you know, and you get ordained and you do all these things and suddenly you realize a lot of the program that you had early on that got you to a certain place has suddenly fallen away. Those of you in recovery know what I'm talking about. You establish a program. It gets you sober. It gets you back on track. And then after a while, the program pieces start to fall off. They're not there anymore. They're not supporting you anymore. And you can run on your capital for a while. You can run on the steam and the velocity that you built up for a while. But eventually, there's a balloon payment. Eventually, things come due. And you're going to have to deal with that. And usually it has to do with external forces that come in and force transitions in your life. And then you look around and you realize, man, I don't have the structure anymore. I don't have the steam anymore. I don't have the chutzpah anymore to deal with this. Got to go back to basics. And what do I do if if I'm going back to basics, if you're going back to basics? Identify my broken windows. Identify those things that I have let fall into disrepair that has been now inviting more disrepair into my life. And start fixing them. And what does that look like? It looks like the smallest details, once again. Rebuilding the structure that was lost. Think about it. If you're going to rebuild structure, if you've lost that you know, day-to-day routine that you used to have, you've got to start looking at every little thing. When do you go to bed? If you're going to have to get up earlier to start doing some of these things, when do you go to bed? What is it that you're eating? Take a look at that. What do you do when no one is looking? Are you only doing the things that are getting the recognition? Are you only doing the things that are getting the paycheck? Or are you doing things that are going to start to rebuild a structure that you can discipline yourself to? Fixing those broken windows, showing up. If you know that you've lost your devotion time, if you know that you've lost your prayer time, can you get up earlier in the morning? Can you go to bed earlier at night? Can you structure yourself? Have you ever heard the the, uh, phrase, plan the work and work the plan? Sometimes it's really hard to do these things. It's easier to adhere to someone else's structure. They give it to you, they put it on a plan, and usually it's tied to some kind of paycheck. That's good incentive. But to do these things for yourself when no one's looking, when there's no pat on the back, when there is no paycheck, how do you get the discipline to pull this out of yourself? A lot of times it's plan the work. In the retreating in place class, we're going to be dealing with a grid that, that uh, I put together next uh, on Wednesday. And it's just seven columns for seven days and hash marks from 5 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. And you plan your day. Put in the set pieces, your job, your meetings, your church schedule, whatever it is that you do at the same time, every day, all week long. And then look at the negative spaces. Start to fill in and block out that time at 5 or 6 in the morning that you're going to get up and spend half an hour, 40 minutes. It's hard to do. But once it's on paper, it sort of exists outside of yourself and you hang it on the fridge, and there it is. There's your taskmaster. There's the whip cracker. You know, it's 5 a.m. What do I do? I get up and I shower and I get a cup of coffee and I sit down and I pray and I read and I do whatever it is I do. And then by 7.30... Seven o'clock, whatever it is, this is what I'm doing, and that's what I'm doing. And you go through the day. And then you know every day you push the ball forward. That's repairing broken windows. That's adhering to your own structure that you set within the structure of your family and the responsibilities that you have. And what about community? Repairing the community. Have you found yourself isolated? 
Have you realized that the things that you used to do and the people you used to hang with, you just don't see anymore? You're not going to the same connective meetings and, and, and gatherings or social or, or exercise or whatever it was. You start putting that back in place. You know that there are relationships that have fallen apart. You can put an olive branch out there. This is what it looks like. It's not necessarily going to feel spiritual, but it's deeply spiritual. When we are back in community again, when we are accountable again, when we have a structure around us again that we are disciplined to, when we have opportunities for service all over, we don't have to go look for them, and we have developed the heart that is willing to help in whatever situation, this is what is happening. Jesus has said, this is kingdom. This is what kingdom looks like. And the beautiful part about it is we only have to do two things. Fix the broken windows in our community. Fix the broken windows in our structure. That's what kingdom looks like. That's what kingdom is. Because as we move into those places with awareness, we see God's presence infused in everything that we're doing. Jesus said, seek first that kingdom in those tiny details and all else will be added. This is, I think, where he's headed. So the truth is, the truth is not out there. Mulder was wrong. Right? The truth is here. It's within. It's in the midst. This is what Jesus was telling us. Kingdom is not out there. Kingdom is already here. And so by attending to our details, we are locking ourselves into the here and the now, which is the only place that we will ever experience kingdom, which is the only place that we will ever experience our Father's presence. And Jesus tells us, I am the way. Look at his life. This is how he lived it. Detail by detail and moment by moment, conversation by conversation, relationship by relationship. I am the way, and this is the only way. To your father. This is how he is approached. See, as long as we think that there's something out there that we have to bring into ourselves to make us worthy and acceptable and loved, we are negating the fact, the truth, the good news that Jesus gave us that God has already made his decision about us. And the decision is good, it's in our favor. He's already given us everything that we need. In order to complete the circuit, the only thing left is for us to choose him back. How do we do that? Not in our minds, not with a spoken prayer. It's by showing up to our details and living as if these things are already true. Which means it's going to feel risky at times. We are going to risk not being accepted if we act and live and choose as if we already are. But even if someone rejects us, there's going to be these over here that don't. And ultimately, we understand how God works in this life. All that's left for us is to show up and live what seems to be true, what we've decided is true. That's faith. Fixing the broken windows is where it starts. If we can delay the gratification of the spectacular and show up to the mundane, show up to what seems to be insignificant, but eventually see the deep significance and the sacred nature of every moment, the spectacular will follow when it does 
And if it doesn't, we're never disappointed and there's never any wasted time. I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And this is the way forward through any transition or difficulty because God is in the details. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I want to thank you again, Lord, for the music this morning. That was just transporting. Help us to become aware of these little gifts that come to us. Something as simple as music. Something as simple as the quality of the weather. Something as simple as an old-fashioned frosted donut. Whatever it is, help us to see how that detail is a blessing. That detail is connective in its own way. Help us not to skip over the insignificant things. Help us to see where we need to fix the broken windows and move and grow in our relationship with you and each other. Thank you for, once again, Lord, your love and everything that you give us and all the tools that you've given us. We can only do any of this. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Let's stand.